let's just get started like this. I don't know if we've got enough to make an episode, so I'm not even going to do the introduction. Just, hi Gary, how you doing? This is this is the Coot Street Podcast. It's supposed to have an elaborate introduction. There's supposed to be a cheering section. We're, okay, here, here's the story, dear listener. Jonathan and I were chatting, as we frequently did, and, and suddenly he started recording. I suggested, and I will recommend uh, that people check out a website I was on last week called fivebooks.com. Um, which has lots of lists. And there are two things that that bring to my mind. One is, what is it with lists? People used to read essays. People, I, I will pick out one of, my, one of the websites I read regularly that has very good writing on it is Tor.com. There are essays on it. There are arguments to be made about science fiction and fantasy, about media, about Dune, about the Marvel Universe, and so forth and so on. Why is it that almost everything has to begin with five blanks that you need to know about, or five books that have spaghetti in them, or seven novels with tall fairies in them? I don't know. Is, do people not read anything that doesn't come in a numbered list anymore? No. I mean, really what you're saying is what's the attractive of the attraction of the listicle, right? Which is what they call these things, these list yes, articles, listicle. which as you say are five, seven, nine, eleven, three, right. whatever, of something or other. And I think it's because they are particularly shareable on social media. They feel like a short, brief um, commitment. They're seldom long or terribly involved yes. pieces. Um. They're actually, in my opinion, quite often by their nature shallow and very recent, have a very a real recency bias to them, which is interesting because they te- they feel like they're shot off of, off the top of your head, you know, just like when you see top twenty science fiction books of all time, and there's a right. couple of these around that have been done lately, and then you look and by some quite unusual chance we're living in an extraordinary period of time, and eighteen of the top twenty science fiction novels of all time have been written in the last three years. In the last three or four years, words, I could remember them off the top of my head, right? Oh, so, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, I'm not picking on Tor.com. Time Magazine does no. the same thing. And Time Magazine did, did, did one of those 100 greatest fantasy novels. And at, at least, I don't know, a, a, a good percentage, an unusually uh, disproportionate percentage were in the last five or six years. Uh, the, 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 the listicle thing, I understand, partly it's a promise to the reader that you're not going to have to get involved in a continuous argument. It's a bunch of mini essays. Secondly, it's a promise that this is finite. You don't see these listicles that say 75 science fiction novels that you need to read before you die because that's too much work. And even that is less work than writing an essay in which you talk about what are the most important science fiction novels and why, um, or fantasy novels, or horror novels, or movies, or whatever. They're quickly consumed conversation starters. Does that you know, mean that- So when Ken Lowe writes one about the best speculative fiction, so it's a top five, mm-hmm. in this case it has to be five great recent, doesn't even say recent, but five great speculative fiction books, and it turns out that all five of them are from the last three years, as these happen to be, um, you sit there and going, well, hang on a minute, how could you have picked this book, this book, and this book, when you didn't pick that book, that book, and that book. It's, it's, it's in a sense, it's not unlike the kind of arguments you'd have with a friend over books you happen to be reading. Exactly. You know, with all which, the same, which, frankly, well-thought-through nature of it. 
Well, this is this is this is it's 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 an observation more than a complaint, but to some extent it means that you're avoiding the issues that you would need to get into if you were going to make this an essay. A lot of these lists I've seen, for example, when the, let's just say the five best speculative fiction novels since the Crimean War, uh, and you list five separate novels, and each of them has a separate set of criteria. In other words, you are at no point during that list making an argument as to what constitute constitutes a speculative fiction novel, let alone what constitutes a good one, let alone what the aesthetics of it behind it. In other words, you might have something useful to say about uh, speculative fiction as a form or as a genre or as a mode or whatever you want to call it, but just listing five things, each of which may have its own definition of speculative fiction, essentially comes down to these are five books that I like, which means... It's exactly what you're saying. You might as well email your friends. These are five books that I like. And I do that. If people ask me, actually, no, I don't do that. If people ask me the five best science fiction novels, and I get that every once in a while uh, because mm -hmm. of that lecture series I did, I have to ask, ask them, what, what do you like? I can, I can tell you five novels that I like, but each of those novels may imply a completely different approach to science fiction. A Dick novel can be a very good novel, but it is never going to be uh, Larry Niven novel. Fair I mean, enough. It's, it's very, very difficult to come up with a theoretical framework that says this Philip K. Dick novel is great and Ringworld is great. They're trying to do two different things. If you're honest and say, I like this one and I like this one, but if you try to you're just avoiding the argument of what are they? What makes these two novels part of the same field? I think that's true. I think it's also when you begin to unpack the underpinnings of these these lists, which I think are done quite often very quickly. It's like, are you hmm. trying to build an academic argument, which is to some degree what you're touching on a little bit? Oh. Are you trying to justify your own position? Are you trying to see a pattern that is there or isn't there? You know, so f as an example, right, this is one that I might have done myself not very long ago on that same website you're talking about, fivebooks.com. Kate Elliott, who's been writing for many years, and written some terrific space opera and has a great space opera series that going right now, did a the best space opera books and did five books and they cover the period 1976, I think it is, 1977, through to, mm -hmm. about, nine, through to about 2023, 2022. And it's a, a set of stepping stones. I mean, I mean, if I was going to do the best space opera, it would be a set of st stepping stones in my mind. How a space opera evolved? How did you yes. go from, let's say, I don't know, um, Starship Troopers to the Forever War to um, Player of Games to Leviathan Waits to whatever? What are the steps? And are you then showing a bias for what you're considering interesting in science fiction and space opera. And like in in, um, in uh, Kate's case, she's picked The Pride of Chinua by C.J. Cherry, mm -hmm. Simon Jimenez's The Vanished Birds, Verna Vinge's A Fire Upon the Deep, Neon Yang's The Genesis of Misery, and Leviathan Wakes by James Corey. And I wouldn't mm -hmm. argue with any of those books. Whether I'd put them in my five stepping stone list, I don't know but I wouldn't argue with them on their individual merits. So it's like it's interesting as to what the list's trying to do. And quite often they're just trying to get you talking mm -hmm. and also fill out pages on fivebooks.com who have to fill out their pages. 
Um, and and it, it's it's clear. I I know I'm sounding like an old fart, which I am, but it's it's clear to me that this is a very appealing kind of thing. And frankly, when I was asked mm-hmm. for five books, I thought that will be fun. But what I thought about my my first thought was probably the academic theoretician, like, oh my God, I have to find a, a framework that explains all of X, Y, and Z in only five books. And and th- th- there used to be books that. I was even asked to do a book uh, about the 100 science fiction books that define science fiction. And it was part of a series that included things like the 100 Jewish books that define being Jewish, the 100 historical novels. Sure. Uh, and I thought, okay, that that's an ambitious uh, and completely insane undertaking. I eventually gave up on the idea. Coming up with only five books, you have, uh, I think, what I'm was trying to get at books that are making interesting arguments about the science fiction world that sure. build on each other to some extent, uh, that are yeah. not parodies. In other words, um, and I, I, I said this, uh, I was interviewed uh, on the website also, and I was saying that you can't really do parodies because uh, you could do uh, endless parodies of, well, you mentioned uh, space opera, for example. You could look at Harry Harrison's Bill the Galactic Hero. You could look at endless parodies. That's not a critical fiction. Critical fictions are ones that comment on something significant about the genre. And if there are five of them, they may not be in dialogue with each other, but they comment in different ways um, mm-hmm. and, and, and different approaches. For example, um, Scalzi's Red Shirts, which is not one that I mentioned because it doesn't specifically allude to science fiction uh specific science fiction works, and yet it obviously does, is kind of a loving parody of, 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 of the whole Star Trek universe. And that's fine. Uh, a lot of Robert Astron's pun-drenched mythological things were parodies of, 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 of myth fictions. But a parody is, is, is a completely different thing from what I'm calling a critical fiction, which is one that looks at the field in an interesting way, or that may be a romantic clef of some sort. Uh, yeah. Where would you put a book like The Color of Magic by Terry Pratchett, which plainly is a book that comments on fantasy? Yes. Uh, and had would I been it asked in your, to... in your novels about fantasy, you might have included it. Mm, I might have. Um, and and, and it, it's, it's also very elusive, as a lot of Terry Pratchett was. So you could find Terry Pratchett novels that alluded to... Um, all sort of sub-genres of fantasy. Um, with science fiction, I was thinking more or less about uh, two different things. One, uh, I, was, I was curious, I was thinking about who, when did science fiction first show up in science fiction? And, or, or I should not say in science fiction. When did science fiction first show up in fiction? And the earliest example I could think of was a 1942 novel by Anthony Boucher called Rocket to the Morgue. Uh, and mm. Boucher was, uh, this is before fantasy and science fiction. It was before he wrote, well, he was writing some of his own science fiction uh, after this. But he wrote, uh, this may have been published under the name H.H. H. Holmes. Anyway, Rocket to the Morgue is a, novel set in the world of pulp science fiction in 1942 and apparently was received entirely as a murder mystery. Mystery scholars and aficionados tell me it was not one of his best. I read it years ago and I thought, it's fine. But then 
If you know who he's talking about, there are portraits of Heinlein and Asimov and L. Ron Hubbard and John W. Campbell and so forth in it. So it becomes a kind of uh, parody of the science fiction community of the time. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it's uh, some of the same stuff that is, is in that 1942 novel shows up you know, decades later in Alec Neville-Ali's history, multiple biography of the astounding people. Um, so to some extent, that's a novel about the science fiction community. There's an, uh, Sharon McCrum, who is mostly yes. known also as a mystery writer, wrote uh, a, cup, a couple of uh, Bimbos of the Death Sun, I think was the title of the first one. And there are novels. Yeah, mystery set in science fiction conventions. Yeah, I think set in where? Science fiction conventions. Yes, right. Isn't yes, it's a and and there's clearly there are no bimbos in that death sun. Bimbos of the death sun, yeah, and uh, so there's clearly a version of Harlan Ellison in that. Um, So 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 that kind of thing, which are kind of not necessarily science fiction novels themselves, but they're kind of love letters to the science fiction community. There. I think there is probably at least one or two uh, uh, Asimov stories that are set at conventions. There are a couple of Ian Watson stories called What Happened in Docklands, which are actually about real world cons. Um, so so, so there's, there's always been this kind of fiction about the science fiction community. Um, in fact, I just thought of this. Um, and... It, it doesn't do me any good to have just thought of it because I can't remember the author or the title. But one of the early issues of a uh, literary periodical called New World Writing that was very popular in the United States back in the 50s, they published things like the first section of Catch-22. They would publish Saul Bellow. They would publish <clears throat> Ralph Ellison. And one of the early issues of that from the 50s had a story in it called The Fantasy People which was about a science fiction convention. Um, And I thought, this is very bizarre because I'd never heard of this author. I later found out from Harlan Ellison that the person who wrote the story had in fact been a fan of conventions, but decided not to ever try writing science fiction. So my one part of my argument is that there's, there's a small shelf of books about science fiction people, novels about, uh, actual characters, either named or not named. Um, in the case of one of the novels I did recommend, Lobby Tidar's The Circumference of the World, he has Asimov and Heinlein and, and John W. Campbell are in there under their own names. Um, so in other words, that's one kind of science fiction about science fiction. It's fiction about science fiction people, whether the fiction itself is science fiction. So this is basically what you're talking about is what I think it's Clute called recursive science fiction, right? Yes. And there's an anthology. And I, so, I think Harry, Harry Harrison, I believe, uh, no, Michael Resnick. Mike Resnick did an anthology of, of recursive science fiction. Um, so you get touches I, of it in Philip K. Dick. Obviously, Philip K. Dick appears right. in the Michael Bishop novel that right. you mentioned in your list. You've got a book like Herovitz World by Barry Malsberg. Right. Even to some degree get smatterings of it through To Your Scattered Bodies Go and things like that where there are references to uh, science fiction writers and you get it elsewhere in the Tim Powers and mm. Chris Priest and stuff. Um, is it, though, more than somebody just playing games for fun? What, what, what does it add? Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. I mean, I... 
uh, I'd, I'd emailed back and forth with Lavi about what I said about his novel, The Circumference of the World, and he made a very good point, which is that the novel, you don't need to know who any of these characters are sure. in order for the novel to work as a novel. <laughs> and that's an issue which has been, it's come up before when I've been on panel discussions about this. No matter how many Easter eggs there might be for science fiction readers, the stop, the novel has to work to, effectively for someone who is completely ignorant of, 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 of those Easter eggs. Um, when uh, go back to some of uh, Lavi Tidar's early Central Station stories, there's a there's a villainous uh, sort of shadowy uh, character named Shamblo. Uh, he could have picked a name anywhere, mm-hmm. but he picked a name out of a C.L. Moore story because for those who knew the C.L. Moore story, he was giving us a little Philip. Um, but no, okay. you can't you, you can't do that just to make inside jokes because then you get then you're basically in, in, in an early form of fan fiction, which has been around in fanzines for many decades by now. Well, well I guess the question is what do you know, if you do this, if you engage in recursive science fiction or recursive fiction where you're reusing things, mm-hmm. what what effect can it have? I mean, I'm interested to see a book like The Stress of Her Regard by Tim Powers cited mm-hmm. as an example of recursive science fiction. After all, it's Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein's in it, and Byron and whoever else. But it feels like there it feels like they're being used very deliberately for a way to build a story and to do what Powers is interested in doing. It doesn't feel like it's just a, a, a name thing where you're playing with it for a joke. No, and I think that Powers' argument has always been that what he's writing is a kind of secret history. He's writing a history, a, a supernatural history within the uh, chinks of, 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 of the historical yeah. record. So that Mary Shelley is, is not meant to be a version of Mary. She is meant to be the real Mary Shelley. As much as he could do in his, the, his series of what I think of his, his 19th, 18th and 19th century secret historical novels, which would include uh, things like um, his novel about the Rosettis, for example, uh, Hide Me Among the Graves, his new novel um, about the Brontes. Uh, he's always been very careful about researching what he could uh, of the historical record and, and, and trying to find places where he can insert his stories. I, I think he meant that to be a historically, reasonably historically accurate portrayal of Byron and Shelley and Keats and mm-hmm. uh, and Mary Shelley. In other words, he's yeah. not making fun of the genre at all. Uh, if anything, he's showing us how the genre of supernatural fiction maps onto the genre of historical fiction without any uh, particular disruption in, e- in either. And this goes back so- to... Uh, this uh, I'm trying to think. Does he do that in the Song of Kali? Back to his, I, probably not. But um, it certainly happens with, uh, uh, with with his other 19th century novels. So, how important? Circling back to um, the, the the lists of five that we started with, hmm. how important then is recency bias in putting these together? I noticed that of your top five, two books came out last year. Absolutely. Or your five, not top. Is, is, um, that to, to, is, there, is there a reason beyond it's nice to talk about recent books or is it that you're attempting? Because, I mean, I like the idea that these are ways of building arguments in, in miniature, right? 
Like you mm. can do a thousand words, five books, and they show you stepping stones. You get a logical argument out of it that you can at least point to. Is that what you're trying to do? Or are you just trying to sort of go, here's examples? Uh, both. I mean, one answer to that is that these are five books that came to mind within the couple of days I had to think them up. And two of them are books I reviewed last year. The other thing, though, is that each of these books isn't uh, is a comment on how the author believes science fiction works and how science fiction affects culture. The oldest book on the list is not Rocket to the Morgue. It's, it's Frederick Brown's What Mad Universe, which is partly a parody of, of, of the pulp magazine. It's about a pulp magazine editor who gets thrust into the world of the pulp fiction that he's been publishing. And it's it can be very funny at times, but it also is kind of a critique of how ridiculous this guy makes a living uh, you know, publishing these stories. No, it's, 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 a, it's critical of science fiction, but it's kind of a love letter at the same time. The Philip K. Dick, uh, the, the Secret Ascension, which was Michael Bishop's novel about Philip K. Dick is a completely different approach to it because it's approaching Philip K. Dick as almost a mystical figure, which is the way he portrayed himself uh, toward the end of his life, or the way he perceived himself, I guess, at the end of his life. But the re- the the the, the um, two most recent novels, the ones from a couple of years ago, I think both Nina Allen and um, in, in Conquest and um, Lavi Titter in uh, the Circumference of the World are really seriously thinking about what science fiction does to our imaginations, how it works, mm. not just as a genre, not just as a community of writers and editors, but how does it sort of distort our understanding of reality over a period of time? Both of these novels feature a fictional 1950s science fiction novel, uh, which we get taste of, which has you know sort of echoed down the decades in all kinds of bizarre ways. Um, and I think you could only write that kind of novel after we've had almost a century of science fiction affecting culture. Yeah. Do you think that these sort of lists push us to look for patterns where they don't really exist? Um, possibly. Um, I mean, I, I I was looking, like, I looked at one of them, right? It's like the, the best science fiction books for beginners, you know, books to recommend. Yeah. I'm thinking, I wouldn't recommend any of these five for a beginner, not one of them, <laughs> even though they're all great books. Um, and then I look at sort of, you mentioned Adam Roberts did, did a list, and he I think his was five classics. And it's yeah. exactly the sort of list I would expect Adam to put together. Careful, carefully put together, thought out, uh, mm. showing snapshot, slices of snapshots over time, etc. But I don't know whether I'm convinced about this whole five thing. Why did you say yes? Um, I said yes because I said no to another question that was asked and suggested this instead. And I was suggesting this because I thought it was, it was trying to come up with something more specific than five of the best about. Um Mm-hmm. So, to some extent, I I I was I've been reading all these lists. I've never made one. Somebody asked me to do one, and I thought, how can I do this uh, in 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 a kind of focused way, and not sound like I'm trying to be absolutely authoritative? Because you're absolutely right. If you put together five science fiction books for beginners, for example, I think we would all come up uh, with different kinds of lists. And my problem with that kind of list is that what do you mean beginner? Is a beginner somebody who's 12 years old and is 
a Star Wars fan or a Marvel MC Universe fan? Or is it somebody who is a graduate student in physics at MIT? I'm going to come up with different entry lists for, for them. I'm not going to put, I'm not, not going to probably put very much Greg Egan on the list for the 12 year old who's a Star Trek fan. Yeah, I don't think we should top five books likely to scare you away from reading science fiction. That's a list. There's a list. Let's think about the books, with, the five <laughs> books which will most likely cure you from ever wanting to read science fiction again. Oh, you can't fill that list out, Gary. You're just going to offend people. <laughs> Possibly it would. You could only... That's the problem with these lists. If you're, ta- if you're being honest about the list, the only <laughs> people you can really be honest about are dead. <laughs> yeah, the books that nearly scared you away, you know. I, I, I often queried my own credentials as a science fiction reader when reading dot, 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 like Dahlgren, right? Dahlgren is a book that had me questioning my own credentials reading science fiction because of you know, finding my way into that book. Similarly with The Shadow of the Torturer. I had the no, same reaction. Oh, I, I had the same reaction to Dahlgren. The Shadow of the Torturer, by the time I got to The Sword of the Lictor, I realized I've been missing about 60% of all I've been reading so far, so I had to go back and start over again. There is very densely literary science fiction. There's, there's no doubt about that. And I wouldn't, you know, somebody... Uh, Somebody said on, on, I think, a comment on one of these lists that uh, you may think that Ulysses is one of the great uh, English language novels, but you probably wouldn't recommend Ulysses to somebody who said, I'd like to start reading English language, language novels. What should I start with? Um, no, you just Here's some James Joyce. Right. Your last I mean, ever English language novel. <laughs> well, you, you remember way back in the early days of this podcast, we had a continuing series, not very, not continuing for very long. Books you don't have to read. Books you don't have to read, exactly. And I was thinking about this this weekend too. Uh, I saw Dune Part Two this weekend, okay. which yep. is it's very good. Uh, people who, well, I, I will put it this way: people who liked and admired Dune Part One will be far more impressed with this. And then Denis Villeneuve, who has been on late night television shows here in the States talking about it, has mentioned that uh, they're asking, is it going to be a Dune 3? It turns out he's read Dune Messiah, which is interesting to me because Dune Messiah is, and I actually, the one time I met Herbert, uh, we talked a little bit about this, The Dune Messiah, Messiah is intended to wrap up certain loose ends and make some very specific points about that were left open at the end of Dune. I thought, and I may just have misheard, so I'm not saying this is fact. I thought mm. Dune Messiah was a piece that was cut off the end of June and published separately. That was originally part of June. It, it might have been part of the original manuscript. I'm not sure of that. But it was. Yeah, it, 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 the, the point is that the, the absolute, almost genocidal uh, re- results of, of, of Paul's stewardship are made much more explicit in Dune Messiah. And it may very well that that had been cut out, but it was something that was important to Herbert. Um, mm. So my point is, in terms of books you need to read, if you want to understand Dune and probably understand Vinu's films, you probably need to read Dune and you probably need to read Dune Messiah. After that, you're in the Dune universe. You're reading... The Duneverse. Uh, the Duneverse. Uh, and and it's, it's the same thing with other series. There's a point at which... There's some point at which uh, the Amber series, the Zelazny series, which I believe is in development 
hell somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very good series, but there's some point three or four or five books into it when you've you've read all you need to know about Amber. And after that, by his own terms, you're building swimming pools for Zelazny. Um, so in every case, uh, there is a point at which, I mean, in, in, including books by good friends of mine that I won't mention, there's a point at which you have finished the initial work and you don't really know to, need to go on in order to understand what the original work was intending to do. I would, even with Gene Wolfe's books, by saying by the time we got to the book of the short sun, you had learned most yeah. of what you needed to learn about that universe. Okay. I have a top five for you, Gary. Okay, top five. This is it. If I was doing top five, top five. I don't know that I've got five books to go in it, but I've got the top five that I try to do. The top five all-time most disappointing science fiction books ever. Right? Really? <laughs> the, number one, the, the number one most disappointing science fiction book of all time is God Emperor of June, which is a um, terrible book by any measure. I, I remember the uh, National Lampoon ran a cover of that under the title "God Help Us" another sequel to Dune, uh, which is pretty much the way I felt with that. Uh, and the, 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 there's a sense in which, uh, yes, it is disappointing, but it's only disappointing if your standards were set by by Dune. In other words, yes, as the series goes, it becomes that they were. But my point is there's a difference between a completed work, which was essentially Dune and Dune Messiah, and some bits of uh, Children of Dune. But after that, you're reading series. You're not reading that original novel. You're not, you don't need to know a lot more about the different houses, and there's a novel for every one of the houses, I'm sure. Um, it's a different I'm trying to remember. It was, either, it was either serialized initially in Playboy or Omni, one of those, those two. And I remember being stunned, like, oh, my God, a new June novel. Yeah. Which seemed like a thing that was never going to happen. And then it was, wow, objectively awful, I think, is fair. But you've just um, exactly, you, you, you've exactly underlined the distinction I'm making, the distinction between Dune and a Dune novel. By the time something becomes sure. a Dune novel, you're past the core work. Okay, okay. Number two on the okay. all-time most disappointing books of all time list, possibly unjustified and very much from personal perspective. The Number of the Beast by Robert Heinlein. That's not even fair. Um, you know why? Yes, this is why I say subjective, it's, it's, right? <laughs> okay, first, okay, there's two things. The, the su- subjective part of it is that was the first new release Robert Heinlein book that, was, that, that came out that I was aware of in my lifetime. Everything else I've ever found before that point was old reprints. So it was the first new Robert Heinlein in a bookstore that I'd never heard of. And I went in and I bought it and it was also, I'm going to say it again, objectively terrible. I'm not arguing. It was an objectively terrible book. Mm. Uh, I can't really argue with that uh, because I couldn't finish it. So I don't know if I'm, (laughs) <laughs> but I mean, but it, it, it kind of becomes, uh, is, is Lazarus long in that one? Yes. No, okay. maybe. Okay. Everybody's uh, in it. Yeah. Um, yes. I think well, everybody is in it. That, that's the one, that's the one with the, 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 the Volkswagen bug that travels through time or something. Oh yeah. And right. nipples go spung and all that stuff. Right. Mm. 
and and you know where arguably he wasn't. I mean, look it, in retrospect, there's there's a couple of the books where of Heinlein's novels where it's either overtly or co- covertly suggested he wasn't very well at the time they came out, so they weren't given the maybe care and attention he might have wanted. And Number of the Beast later expanded unnecessarily into the Panky Barsoom Number of the Beast. Yes, um, is a good example of that, you know, and and a vastly disappointing effort i don't know that i've got got, what i've got at three four and five but those are my my top two all-time most disappointing science fiction novels well i didn't i i I guess um i'm trying to think of other things from that period the cat who walks through walls for example and that sort of thing um no none none were kind of none none were quite that it's worst book Hmm? uh look i mean if you can look back, there's that period in the 70s, and I'm sure that there's a lot of Heinlein scholars who will disagree with me, and I also have this – I want to give a nod to our mutual friend, um, Farah Mendelssohn, who actually went back and researched everything and has an informed and useful opinion as opposed to sort of my form of semi-useless recency bias and, and vague recollection. But it's my recollection that if you look back at the novels – from the seventies, there's a string of them that are pretty miserable, you know, because he wasn't well when, which was the one I will fear no evil came out. Mm. Um, that was not a good book. That was just genuinely not good. Time enough for love was kind of all over the place. Number of the beast was awful. Friday was sort of almost like a good retro pastiche of Heinlein because he was expanding an existing story. And then there was that last sort of, dribble of books for us, the living variable star and the cat who walks through walls and those ones. And was it to sail beyond the sunset? The the latter of which I seem to have developed this habit of not reading the last book ever published by a writer whose work I liked. It could very well be. I think beyond the sunset. One of the other things I remember, I believe I remember this from reading Patterson's, uh, Patterson's autobiography was that he wasn't being edited much at that point. Uh, his, his novels yeah. were enormously successful. They were pre-sold. People wanted uh, thick uh, arguments. There's an argument to be made. My, my wife, Dale, has made this argument that there's some experimentation going on in those novels, that he's trying out different narrative modes and trying to expand on what had done earlier uh, in ways... I would definitely defer to anyone who's thought about it as opposed to simply reacted to it, which is what I did, I confess. Well, it, does, it doesn't mean that the novels are, are any more shapely. But it's just that they're they may be more adventurous than people give them credit for. He may be, and, and mm. you can say the same thing for some of the late Frederick Pohl novels. Um, like uh, once he got through Gateway in his classic novels, he was getting into some strange things. I think the coming of the quantum. No. Look, Gateway was 1976, right? Yeah. I'm going to stand up for a little bit of latter period Fred Pohl, right? Because okay. Gateway comes out in 76 Gem was a fairly solid book, as I remember. That's okay, yeah. But um, still... There's a lot of books. He's, I mean, there's a while there where he's hammering out a book a year or more. He's continuing the He Chi series. But he also puts out, um, why doesn't it show up here? What? There was that book about New York that he did, which was very, very good. Oh, yeah. New York Under a Bubble or something. And, and I should know the name of it. It should come straight Years to mind. Yes. And the years of the city was terrific. Yeah, that was good. Uh, there, is a, 
it doesn't get cited. It gets cited in his bibliography as a collection, but I don't recall it that way. It was like a, you know, a, yeah, a fix-up of novellas. Fix and that showed him thinking, now this is what, 1984? Yeah. Uh, thinking as clearly and as well as he ever did. But I guess there's also that professional science fiction writer thing where you just, to some degree, you keep going. You don't stop. It's like, yeah, I mean, there are these guys who wrote into their 80s, some of them, and sometimes they were as sharp as they ever were. I mean, there's always that feeling with Wolf that right to the end, Gene Wolf yeah. was as sharp as he ever was. And there are others where you felt they were just still having a go. Making a living, right? And, and and I don't think you can necessarily gainsay any of that. In other words, uh, no. somebody who's uh, who's who's built up a brand, and the, the best you hope they don't ruin the brand. You hope they don't write things late in their career that will undo the earlier things. Yeah. But by and large, that usually doesn't happen. I mean, some of the late Zelazny works are not nearly as energetic as the earlier ones. They're not incompetent. Um, but uh, there's clearly a sense um, that Zelazny was knew how to do Zelazny. The last two or three Brian Aldiss novels were frankly not very good. Um, they were, in a sense, Aldiss, the elder historian of the field, building some of his arguments into his own fiction, but the fiction itself uh, wasn't that compelling. So uh, th- 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 there is a sense of that, I think. And there's... You're right. There are writers who, um, like Gene Wolfe, uh, seem to just have more and more and more and more that they that they want to get out. Um, I, 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 I don't know how we got from our various lists to this, but oh, um, I know. It's because I ha- I've dropped in the not particularly pleasant sort of segue of most disappointing science fiction books of all time. Well. Okay, there are two kinds of disappointing. I could, I could go back and look at novels that are not necessarily incompetent. I can look at, here's one, Footfall. Remember that? Uh, I do the, indeed remember Footfall, Gary. You actually How are you read disappointed football? by Footfall? I read Football. Footfall. Not Football, Footfall. Footfall. I mean, the one with, with the Michael Whalen cover on it that showed <laughs> a military SF elephant is my recollection. Pretty much something like that, yeah. Yeah. But you're defending the novel on the basis of a Michael Whale. No. No. No, no, no. no. Don't. <laughs> I didn't defend it. I merely observed the cover. Well, okay. My argument is this. My argument is that these are writers who, at uh, maybe a decade or two earlier, had shown serious ambition with the moat in God's eye. Whatever. And I've not reread the moat in God's eye in a long time. It probably isn't as innovative as it may have seen, seemed at the time. But what they ended up doing was writing um, commercial properties that were competently done. Mm. And I have no problem with the level of competence. What I have a problem with is that the novels weren't very interesting. They were, beha- they, they, they were performative. They were, we know how to do this and we're going to do it and it'll be a bestseller. Um, and that's fine as far as they want. I, I know from people, I shouldn't say I know, but I believe from people who were able to read uh, all of Tom Clancy's novels that the latter novels in that series were performative. This is, I am Tom Clancy, I know how to do this. And then even later than that, I am Tom Clancy and I know how to train other people how to do this, which is why their name is on this novel also. Um, so I wonder th- if I would a, include Footfall. Um, we have to continue. Well, 
Well, there, there could be any okay. didn't they, didn't they write a, right? Didn't they write a Beowulf novel also? Yes, they did. Uh, Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell, with other diverse hands, uh, most notably Steve Barnes, but also Michael Flynn, S.M. Sterling, some other people. I think, mm. uh, well, S.M. Sterling certainly with, with Niven. Niven has collaborated quite a lot. Um, yeah. wrote books of varying levels of interest. And sometimes yeah. it felt like it depended, wh- how interesting they were depended on where it felt like the origin of the story came from, that a Niven-originated uh, story or what felt like a Niven-originated story struck me as more interesting than necessarily a Pornell-originated story. And if, you know, you've touched on The Moat in God's Eye, and as you know, I've been interested in talking about that book because it's its 50th anniversary this year. Yeah. And it's interesting because it was so widely lauded as being at its time, right at the time, whether it was boosterism, whether it was a genuine feeling about the book, but Theodore Sturgeon, Robert Heinlein, other people are hailing this as possibly the best science fiction novel ever written. Ever, right. And it's certainly ever written. Uh, Best portrayal of aliens, all this kind of thing. And it's a book that's still in print today, so it's still read. It's mm-hmm. a book which, as it hits its 50th anniversary, you'd, you'd have to go back to see whether it still feels readable now. I don't have an opinion because I haven't reread it in I haven't either. 40 years. I, I, I mean, back in 1977, 78, when I came across it, did I enjoy it? Yeah, I loved that book at the time. How would I feel about it? To, or probably a little bit earlier than about 75, 6, I would have come across it. 75 or 6, right about I, I, I thought it was great. It seems to me it was about the same time as the, maybe a little bit earlier, of, of, of Le Guin's The Dispossessed. And it may be a bias of being in the literary end of the boat, or it may be a bias because Le Guin is, is such a legendary figure at this point. But my, and I, I have reread The Dispossessed because I taught it, and I was surprised at how well that held up. And I suspect it would hold up as a novel. The terms, the, 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 the complexity of the characterization the complexity of the politics of it, all of that sort of thing is still being discussed a lot today. I, I'm not sure that uh, I've read any histories of science fiction since Adam Roberts's, but my guess is that The Dispossessed probably shows up much more um, in classrooms and in literary studies and in histories of the genre than The Mode in God's Eye does. Because The Mode in God's Eye was, I think, and I think this is part of the uh, boosterism that was going on, it was kind of intended to be or viewed as an apotheosis of the sort of thing that astounding science fiction had been doing for decades. In other words, if you take standard, quote, unquote, golden age science fiction and push it as far as you can in terms of what alien intelligence might be like, in terms of what the um, astronomy of it might be, you take all those elements of classic science fiction and do them really well, and you get a novel like this. My guess is that the novel probably doesn't hold up as well as a number of other novels from the same period, including novels by hard SF writers like Gregory Benford's Timescape, for example. Um, Well, I mean, if you think about a book that holds up well from the mid-'70s by Niven and Pornell, you would have to imagine, and again, here's where, I mean, Honestly, I haven't reread it in a long time, but I seem to recall that uh, Ringworld was around that time. Yeah, I think it's. And I would have thought that Ringworld stands up pretty well. 
you know, that would be my expectation. But I was, I was just thinking along the way, you know, it's all, you know, I've talked about, you know, sort of all time top five most disappointing books of all time, right? Yeah. And Ringworld was 1970, so it's like four years before The Moat in God's Eye. When I think about all time most disappointing, there's books that were disappointing because, frankly, they weren't very good. And I would stand by my top two that I've mentioned yeah. already as being not very good. Then there's the ones which, because they messed with my expectations. Mm-hmm. So, all time top five most disappointing books, I was deeply disappointed by Always Coming Home by Ursula K. Le Guin. Really? And I was I was deeply disappointed because it wasn't at all what I was expecting. It is its own curious, experimental, interesting thing. And I think it it's is. a book that has aged well over time. And I'm more than happy to say I was wrong at the time. But at the time, I was bitterly disappointed. It's, it's a book that is an experiment in a kind of world building that didn't really exist in those terms, wasn't talked about in those terms when she was writing it. But I think it surprised a lot of people. With I still have the edition that had the tape cassette that came with it in the mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, and And I remember thinking, as a novel, no, I was not engaged by it particularly as as a world, as a culture. Uh, it's I, I, it, it felt too educational. I was learning a lot from it. I was getting a lot of thoughtfulness, but no, it was not uh, the kind of thing that I was expecting. But then the more you read uh, Le Guin, it's a little bit the same thing with um, with other writers who are complex and who are complexly self-referential. Delaney, uh, Le Guin, Gene Wolfe is one of them. Each novel and each story takes on a, an added depth in the context of other ones. I, it took me a long time to read Le Guin's Orsinian Tales and, uh, and mm-hmm. until the Library of America published. The first time I'd read them. And I thought, okay, these are not actually fantasy novels. They take place in an imaginary country over centuries. And I began to see what she was doing historically. I know why she wanted them published first in the Library of America series. Then I would read other novels of hers like The Sea Roads, which is, again, not fantastic at all, but it's generations, essentially generations of women in the coastal town in Oregon. And it's a beautiful novel. It's, it's, it's absolutely um, gorgeous once you realize this is part of the Le Guin oeuvre. It's not part of the science fiction and fantasy oeuvre. And I think what disappointed you and I think disappointed me with sure. Always Coming Home was that it wasn't in no way a conventional science fiction or fantasy or utopian or dystopian novel. It didn't fit any of the categories we approached it with. I think I'd con- contextualize my own all-time most disappointing science fiction books of all time list with this piece of information as well. You can only make the list if you've already written something that I loved. That's I could only be disappointed true. if I had high expectations. So, you know, so for example, um, a new writer, a first-time novelist, could not possibly make an all-time disappointing list because I have no expectations for them yet, particularly, unless I suppose, okay, I'll tell you a book that could have made that list but did not hmm. does not make that list. The Book of Love by Kelly Link is a book that could have made that list. If Kelly had roundly face-planted with The Book of Love, which she does not, but if she had, it would have been a all-time disappointing. I had high expectations, and they were either repurposed, changed, or met, which is all you could hope for from a, something we've been waiting for that long. Right, and as she said when she was talking to us on the podcast, you can't write, you can't work from the idea that 
uh, reader expectations are going to be a certain thing. Uh, I mean, the, the, sure. the same question has been kicking around for years now about Ted Chiang, who has repeatedly said that he will write a novel when the idea that he has requires hmm. a novel to do it. And everybody is going to be, they're going to have exactly the same kind of expectations of a Ted Chiang novel that they did of a Kelly Link novel. If Ted Chiang decides to write a novel about the gunfight at the OK Corral, it will surprise a lot of people. But if he does with it what Ted Chiang can do with fiction, it might absolutely surprise and delight people. I'm trying to think of examples of, right, OK, here's another example of what was a disappointment at the time and holds up better. Bradbury, who had not really written a novel, I mean, despite what you might say about Fahrenheit 451, which is a novella, or uh, The Martian Chronicles, which is a fix-up. His first novel as a novel was something wicked this way comes. And by and large, it it, it did well with literary readers, but by and large, it was a recycling of favorite Bradbury tropes, mostly from the October country, um, with very familiar characters, uh, very familiar prose, nothing terribly new in it. It was a distillation of Bradburyana. And I think a number of people, including myself at the time, I think I was a kid, but I was old enough to have read Bradbury stories by then, was thinking, this is Bradbury doing Bradbury. He's doing it very well, but he's not offering us any new surprises. He's not expanding our horizon because beyond what we had seen in the short fiction. Sure, so sure, to, sure. That, to that extent, the book was a disappointment. Now, if you go back and look at Bradbury, you don't go back and look at all of the early Bradbury horror stories and I was dark carnival stories and that sort of thing. You don't read that as a preface to something wicked. If you approach something wicked this way comes as a novel by Ray Bradbury, which uh, was his first major novel, and it, 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 it seems perfectly fine. In other words, yeah. if, you, if you approach it without the expectations that those people in 1962 or whatever brought to it, then it's, it, it doesn't seem disappointing, but it did at the time. Since we are segueing our way through one of the top five all-time most disorganized episodes of the Coot Street podcast. Well, that's what we're doing deliberately, of course. We we planned it this way. Of from course, the beginning. of course, of course. We didn't even introduce this one. It's barely a podcast at all. Um, let me just segue back to the top five books thing again and something that gives me the shits. Hmm. Something that gives me the shits about these lists are people who cheat. You know, it's like, Top fantasy novels of all time, and they'll take three books and name them by the series and call that one entry. It's like ah. somebody wrote a top five best J.G. Ballard books. Now there are any number of contenders right. for this. What's their number one pick? The complete short stories of of J.G. Ballard. Oh come on! I'm like, I'm going like, kiss off. That's just just taking the piss. That's like, oh, I don't have to decide if I put, I don't have to decide between this one or that one. I don't have to worry about. No, I'll just put fourteen hundred pages of short stories. What a, what a cheat! Well, I think you have to not, play fair by the in these things. Well, it, it, one of the things, one of the things I will defend about these finite lists, five of this, three of that is that it, they promise that you don't have to read 1,400 pages to get to number two on the list. In other words, the idea is that the lists are in some way selective. In other words, these uh, my list was not every novel or story I could ever think of that was about no. science fiction. It was about the ones that came to mind, to be honest about it. But the idea that you're, and this is where I do object to the five 
best uh, fantasy novels for new fantasy readers is that you don't know anything about these readers. Uh, you don't know. You, 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 the best thing you're doing for them is saying, only have to read these five novels and you'll have some idea of what I think fantasy is. And if one of those novels is, and you could legitimately do this, you could say one of those novels is The Lord of the Rings, another of those novels is The Book of the New Sun, another of those novels is the Gorman Guest Trilogy, you're way beyond anybody's capacity for patience. Anyone who says The Book of the New Sun needs a kick in the pants. Not because it's not brilliant, but because it's not one book. It's a novel. I would argue it's a four-part novel. It is not a novel plus. Even, I'm not even convinced. I, I think you're playing games with Lord of the Rings, frankly, as well. They're published as individual volumes. Oh, I am playing. I'm totally playing games with Lord of the Rings. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, <laughs> my, my, my argument is this, and this it goes back to, I don't know, it goes back to Proust, I suppose. The question is, were these com- composed as a single work? My understanding is that the Book of the New Sun okay. was conceived as a single work. Tolkien had conceived the Lord of the Rings, but my sense is that he had some sense of the response to the Fellowship of the Ring before he had finished all the revisions on the next two. So to some extent, they're conceived as both part of a series and individual novels. Uh, But I don't think they were conceived as one novel because each has its own very distinct narrative arc. Um, So that, that gets us into a completely different discussion, which is what is the difference between a multi-volume novel and a series of novels, which is probably something that somebody... A whole other podcast. A, a whole, whole other podcast and probably a, a whole other debate in terms of uh, Hugo <laughs> categories, because I've always been... Uh, we'll, 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 we'll cover this on another podcast, but I admit I am puzzled by the Hugo series category, just given the number of different kinds of things that people have nominated in it. Yeah, I mean, we might segue out to the Hugos in a second because we're nearly at the end of our hour. Oh, good. But, so we don't talk about them for a while. Um, when it comes to the best series thing, I'm not a huge fan of it as a category, honestly, mostly because it does break what I understand to be a fundamental concept behind the Hugos, which is one work shouldn't be eligible multiple times. Right. Right. And so I'm sympathetic to that. And so I don't love it for that reason, but it's what it is. But what I will say is, without segueing into the enormous controversies and injustices and illnesses that have happened with the Hugos over the that we've had about over the last month or so, I will say that we are about a week out from the Hugo Award nominations closing. Yes. So if you're a member of the Glasgow World Science Fiction Convention, if you're going to be there like Gary or like almost certainly me, then you can nominate and we encourage you to do so. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, if you've enjoyed the Cood Street podcast during 2023, we would be very, we would be grateful for your nomination, but you should nominate what you love. And similarly, you know, Gary's done critical work. I've done editing work. We've been busy people. We've been busy people, as have a lot of our friends who have been on the podcast and who have worked yes. out this year. And I think the other thing, which is probably worth mentioning without getting completely into the quagmire, is that from all we have been able to read and determine and discuss about the people running at Glasgow Warcon, your vote actually will make a difference this year. Nothing, strange, nothing strange will happen to it. 
Yes. I mean, as I said to you just or before the con- the conversation began, this podcast began, to me, there's only one way the Hugos get it wrong because everybody likes to, I, I've spent decades enjoying arguing with the Hugos. I love yeah. arguing with the Hugos. They get it wrong all the time because they don't agree with me. Exactly. However, the only way that Hugos can actually get it wrong is if votes aren't calculated properly and honestly, which does not seem to have happened uh, mm. last year, which is a great a great sadness, really, because I think the members of Chengdu, all of them deserved better than what happened. And I think the nominees, all of them, and the prospective nominees, all deserved better. So that's a real problem. But it looks like this is going to be a cleanly run set of Hugos. And so I hope people won't be discouraged from nominating or voting uh, and will instead be active, go out and read all of the wonderful books that, that, that came out last year, give them a chance. I was thrilled, thrilled, Gary, to see the British Science Fiction Awards shortlist this year. I don't know yes. if you've seen the, the final BSFA shortlist. But Take a look at without it. Going into, was without, without going into it too deeply, I mean, what I particularly was delighted to see was that our fr- friend of the podcast, Wale Talabi, was, has been nominated for um, Shigiri and the, Brass, and the Mask of Fabulon. Balafon, and also that Jeff Ryman, uh, that him has been nominated, yep. which I think is a terrific and major work that has the risk of being overlooked just because of when it was published in the year, right at the very tail end of the year. So I was really happy to see that that considered. And was Christopher Priest also nominated this year? Yes. Airside, so. Um, oh, so it's, it's, all it's, kinds it's, of sort of friends of the podcast are sort of yeah. nominated, which is great. You know, I was looking at it and sort of, uh, as I think Farah Mendelssohn, friend of the podcast, is there. Mm-hmm. Neil Harrison, friend of the podcast, is there, and so on and so forth. So, um, all kinds of people who we'd congratulate. And oh, that's something else we have to do. Okay. First of all, congratulations to everybody who's nominated for the BSFAs. Yes. Good luck. Please do nominate for the Hugo Awards. Nominate what you like, what you thought was good. Ignore what we recommend, what everybody else recommends. Recommend what you vote for what you what you what you love. The other thing that's been happening with almost astonishing sort of regularity and sadness are unexpected obituaries in the history of science fiction. We've yeah. lost just a caval just a cavalcade of writers, and most recently. Not Brian Stableford, who passed away since right. you know, we last recorded. Uh, someone who I never met, but who I read quite a bit of and had been very impressed with, particularly in the late 80s through the 90s. He did a book called The Empire of Fear, which was extraordinary, um, and then did a series of books for Dave Hartwell at Tor that were that were terrific. The well, Immortality far, series. Future and novels about what he called Immortality. Uh, mm. And I, I reviewed, I think, maybe three of them. And I think those were for David Hardwell. Yeah. They're, they're some of the most thoughtful considerations of immortality. Immortality in his definition, he may have started this, he may not have, I don't know, mm. is that you can indefinitely extend your life, but you can be killed, obviously. In other words, yes. this is not yeah. immortality. And so he, he wrote very thoughtful uh, novels about long life. He wrote uh, terrific histories of early science fiction. He was a translator of French science fiction. Um, I discovered uh, something that made me really feel both sad and old was somebody sent me a, um, a DVD, which had been recorded at a panel 
discussion, which I chaired at the International Conference on the Fantastic in 1989. That's how far this goes. But the panelists were um, Harlan Ellison, Brian Aldous, Peter Beagle, Brian Stableford, and Octavia Butler. And the thought that Peter Beagle and I are the only ones of, <laughs> left from that group yeah. uh, is kind of appalling. And I was thinking, I mean, literally only weeks ago when I discovered this, that at least Stableford is with us. And I, he, but he had been ill for a long time. He'd had vision yeah. problems for a much longer time. Uh, and to some extent, it's, it's, it's not surprising. But it has been a devastating beginning to the year in terms of it has. necrology. And it reminds me that really we should get we should try to have a chat with Peter Beagle about his new novel. Yes, which I which understand is true. I've read and you haven't. Oh, it's really, really good. I really enjoyed it. Oh, be the oh, reviewer. Yeah. You're the editor. What's the thing here? Well, you, you, you're supposed uh, to be sending these things to me to read. I'm supposed to read them. You're was I? To... Uh, okay. I'll have to see what we did with it. But I certainly, I read it. Uh, I read it on the plane back from uh, World Fantasy in a single sitting. Well, here's my here's my and guess. Without having read it, without having read it, my guess is that parts of it are really pretty funny. Yes. Which is another yeah, topic. Sure. It's another topic. I would like to bring this up because Peter it can be an extremely funny writer, even when he's not writing about dragons and unicorns. And I'd like to talk about the use of humor because we've talked off and on with some very funny writers. We've talked Joe uh, uh, Saad Hussein can be a hilariously yes. funny writer. K.J. Parker, who was on the podcast many years ago, is a very funny writer. Peter Beagle can be. The, uh, the idea that there is room for genuine comic writing, I mean, in the traditions of P.D. Woodhouse and others, not, not just puns and slapstick and that sort of thing, but real humorous literature. Obviously, Terry Pratchett is kind of the godfather of the whole thing, but there's a lot of this going on, and we should spend some time. It's true. We should. We should do that. Hey, guess what? We made it to an hour. It's an episode. It's, it's an episode. Now, let's go back and do the introduction. Hang on. I know what to do. And now. No. And then. And then coming to you live from the from the, the Gresham Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it was Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. Yeah. That was like an outro. Work. That's fine. Yeah, it'll have to be good enough to all they're going to get.